Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, you have me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as usual. Brittany's not with us as we recorded, so hers is separate, as you'll hear. And then I sat down with Denora Gattachi from Generation Citizen, an organization who's focused on civic engagement, actually just was at their big year-end event and saw the students presenting their ideas around civic engagement, and it was amazing. And the message this week is a piece of advice that you probably heard before, but it's go slow to go fast. This has been a long five years for me and for so many other protesters and organizers, and I'll tell you that it was go fast and go fast. We were just like going and going and going. And this past few months, I've just been taking it slower and it has been really rejuvenating to like check in with myself to get re-centered so that I can ramp back up. So go slow to go fast is a piece of advice that like seems really simple, but much harder to do in execution. And we've been trained that like you go fast to go fast, but really go slow to go fast is it. Let's go. Hey, y'all, Brittany Packner Cunningham at Miss Packetti here. From my news, I wanted to actually talk about debtors prisons in Utah. Now, technically, they're not debtors prisons because debtors prisons were outlawed in the 1800s. But high interest loan companies in Utah are literally finding a way around this to create a 21st century version. What happens is that folks in low income circumstances will apply for a high interest loan and they'll get it. But if they're unable to pay, which is already highly likely because the interest rates are so high that they're abusive, here's what ultimately happens. They can get sent to jail. Technically, what happens is they'll receive a court summons. But because folks living in low-income circumstances often don't have access to transportation or childcare or are moving frequently so they actually never receive the summons because it got sent to an old address— the lender can actually sue them and then cart them into jail for missing the court appearance. Missing the court appearance has a warrant attached to it. And once that person doesn't meet that court appearance, they can be arrested. High interest loan companies are using Utah small claims court to do this. In fact, between September 2017 and September 2018, 66% of all small claims cases heard in Utah were filed by high interest lenders. It's very clear that they've created a system to go around the law to create debtors prisons. In those small claims courts, they can sue for up to $11,000. And because of Utah's rules around small claims court, it's actually really difficult to get the kind of representation that you deserve. We know that in these courts, there are very rarely lawyers for those who are being sued and that judges are actually not even always legally trained and the rules of evidence don't even apply in small claims court. What we also know is that bail has a different meaning in Utah. So let's say that you get hauled into court because you've missed your court date for whatever reason and you're being sued because of the back pay that you owe your high interest lender. In Utah, in 2014, state legislators actually passed a law that made it possible for creditors to get access to bail money posted in civil cases. So unlike other places where if you post your bail money and you meet all of your requirements, eventually, theoretically, you're supposed to be able to get that bail money returned to you, in Utah, the creditors can actually take it to help repay your debt. So not only are they suing you, not only are they making it more difficult for you to repay your loan because they've thrown you in jail, any bail money that you've put up, they also have access to. This continues to make folks beholden not only to the state's actions, but to the actions of these high interest loan companies. We've talked about all of the ways in which there have been de facto debtors prisons 
prisons and places like Ferguson and other places where we see an abundance of aggressive policing, an abundance of ticketing, court fines and fees that make it very difficult for people to actually pay them, to show up the few times when court is open, and then those folks get thrown in jail. This is another disgusting version of that. And I'm sure that plenty of people never thought that something like this was happening in a place like Utah, but it is. My question is, where else is it happening and what can we do about it? What's up, y'all? It's the news. This is Clint Smith, at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Sam Sinyangwe, at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Dre, at DIY on Twitter. Brittany is not with us for this part of the news, but always here in spirit. What happened this week? Uh, well, what happened is, I think we have officially entered, I know technically Thanksgiving was when you begin to enter the holiday season, but I feel like we just put up our tree, we put up our Christmas decorations, the kids are like very hype. We got a bunch of black Santas around. We were walking around the mall and they saw a white Santa and my toddler was like, who is that? And I was like, that's Santa Claus. And he was like, what? Like, that's not a black man. I'm confused. And that was a very proud moment in my parenting. Dad of the year. Got a home full of black Santas. Um, we also have been watching a lot of holiday movies. That's something we like to do a lot in our house. And Christmas movies are interesting because many of them are like really cheesy, but still deeply enjoyable to watch. I was rewatching Love Actually. And like Love Actually is an interesting movie because it's like kind of messed up on several fronts as I look back. It's like one of those things that you really enjoyed 10 years ago when you look back, you're like, oh man, there's some kind of problematic stuff about this, but I still kind of enjoy it. But like, ah, uh, you know, it's Christmas. We watched Best Man Holiday. Man, the nostalgia was flowing back. And yeah, we're going to make our way through. Netflix has this entire catalog of holiday movies that you don't even know about. Like, if you go to holiday stuff on Netflix, it's just, like, all of these original Netflix movies that you had no clue about. Just, like, random. They really have, like, become the Hallmark channel. There are so many that you've just never heard of. Yeah, I watched a couple of those yesterday and the day before, and they were nothing to write home about. But it was interesting to think about, you know, like, Hallmark was sort of the channel where you had a lot of these sort of, like, really cheesy sort of low-budget movies around Christmas time, And I think, like, Netflix has become, like, the new place for that. But, you know, I'm still hopeful. I'm uh, watch a couple more. I think there's some gems in there. So, you know, we'll see what happens. There's a series called, like, How It Was Made or something, and it is the behind the scenes of some cool movies or, like, shows that we all love. And one of them is Home Alone. And I, like, completely forgot that Macaulay Culkin was nine. He was, like, a kid kid when they filmed that, which is wild. But I also learned uh, that they filmed it at New Trier High School, like the old New Trier in Chicago. Like, it was all, all of that is essentially filmed inside of a not abandoned school but it wasn't being used anymore for schooling and that's where they set the production up like if you remember that scene in home alone where uh the water like where they flood the basement they built the entire part of that house in the pool so they could just like actually flood it and it would drain like brilliant i learned all this stuff about a classic holly movie and that's one of the few movies that comes on thanksgiving and christmas you know like still to this day and i i don't know about y'all but when that came on i was like obsessed with booby traps i was like if anybody ever breaks in we'll make a million booby traps did you make booby traps yeah but like obviously they weren't as great as the ones at home alone but yeah i was like obsessed with the idea that like i'm gonna put a string here and if they pull the they were they were these remarkable feats of engineering that mccullough culkin was pulling off out here you didn't make booby traps i think i was like most kids where you like put some a yo-yo here and tie it around 
a tub of Vaseline. You know, you put all this stuff and then none of it works. And then your mother's just upset with you because there's like Vaseline all over the floor. But it worked in my head. I also just realized Macaulay Culkin's brother is the dude on Succession. Really? I was like, this face looks familiar. I didn't even know his brother was an actor. I mean, he looks just like him, you know, like they really do look very similar. Um, Okay, so for my news, uh, I want to talk about California, where because of the efforts of organizers and activists all across the state, uh, this past legislative session successfully passing Assembly Bill 392, which changes the state's deadly force standard on January 1st of 2020 in less than a month. The new law is going to go into effect. Now, this law most notably changes the deadly force standard from a quote unquote reasonable to necessary, saying that police essentially can only shoot at people when quote unquote necessary. But what's interesting about this is while that's what it says on paper, the reality is behind the scenes that there is one corporation that essentially writes the use of force rules and policies for 95% of California's police departments. And that is a company called Lexipol. Lexipol not only writes the policies for all of those California departments, they also write the policies for thousands of departments across the country. And they are founded by former law enforcement officers, one of whom turned into a lawyer and then defends police officers who are sued uh, for misconduct after they shoot people. So that's the person who founded this organization. And they have been behind the scenes working to reassure law enforcement agencies that the new law, as implemented by Lexapol when they rewrite those policies, will essentially not change the existing standards that were already in place. So what's fascinating about this is they post all of this information publicly online. They post their you know, webinars and briefing documents around what the impact of this new law will be. And just looking at this, you know, I'm just going to read word for word from one of the slides in the presentation, which says, is law enforcement now limited to use deadly force only when necessary? And their answer, no. So essentially what's happening is this private corporation, uh, which continues to make uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from each city uh, in order to write their policies, is doubling down on a position that they're not going to actually implement uh, this law in a way that fundamentally changes how and when police can use deadly force. So wanted to talk about this because it's one thing uh, to pass a law. It's another thing to implement it. Now that this law is going to be implemented, it's really important to start paying attention to the, in many cases, private corporations that are tasked with and contracted with to actually write those policies. Um, And it's not looking good right now for California. Yeah, I'd heard of Lexapol vaguely, and I think we've had a couple conversations about the privatization of policing and the way that a lot of these things that used to be done by police departments are being outsourced. But I didn't understand the reach of how wide their net was, so to speak, right? This idea that they provide policies for approximately 3,400 police, fire, and correctional agencies across 35 states and has grown rapidly according to the appeal over the last 15 years throughout California, where its clients include more than 90% of law enforcement agencies in that state, which is an astonishing number. You know, this is the largest state in the country, and 90% of the law enforcement agencies 
have outsourced and hired this organization that has little to no transparency. You know, it's impossible to know just how far Lexpol's reach has spread because the company declines to provide a list of its clients saying that it's proprietary information. But according to an analysis published last year by the Texas Law Review, it says although there are private, nonprofit, and government entities that draft police policies, Lexapol is now a dominant force in police policymaking across the country. So this is concerning because it's a sort of black box of information and we don't know. These people are not accountable to anyone. There is a little transparency that exists. This is obviously something that touches the lives of millions of people and millions of people should not have their engagements with the criminal legal system taking place without understanding who is shaping what the policies are that these law enforcement agencies are implementing. I remember uh, Sam and I actually had a call with a professor looking for something about qualified immunity or Granby Connor, a really important Supreme Court case with regard to the police. I get on the phone with a professor and she is helpful. Uh, and then she starts to talk about Lexapol. And she, Professor Schwartz, she is one of the leading scholars on Lexapol. This has been her thing. So it was the first time we'd ever heard of it. And I was like, whoa, this is intense. And we have followed it since. We brought it on the podcast before. We didn't know that they were literally creating materials to walk police departments through how to skirt the law. Like, that is actually what this resource is. And I was like, that was fascinating. We knew that they were writing policy, but they are also like helping people navigate laws in ways that will make police officers less liable. Another thing that was interesting is the way they think about success. So they have a one pager out that's like a return on investment is the phrasing. And it talks about the proven results with Lexapol. So they do like a Lexapol versus non-Lexapol agency. They track claims. So like the number of people who complaints are raised about or claims against the police department for things like using force. And what they say is that there's a lot of reduction in litigation and there's a reduction in the dollar amount of claims paid out. But remember, that doesn't mean that less wrongdoing is happening. It means that Lexapol is actually helping them create rules so that when a chokehold happens, for instance, it doesn't matter because a chokehold is no longer a violation of policy because they've actually undone it in the rulemaking. And like that is actually really wild. Now, I was able to speak to a police chief once and I asked her, I was like, why would the department choose Lexapol, right? Given all the obvious things wrong with it. And she was like, you know, the city's law department's pretty slow. So say a law passes at the state level or at the city level, and we need to figure out how to interpret it. The city lawyers, they're just strapped because they are the lawyers for the entire city, every agency. So she's like, this was actually just quicker. It functionally made more sense for us to go to experts. And it's like, I totally understood where that rationale came from. The problem is that these experts are not nonpartisan. They are very partisan. They're former police officers who specialize in getting people off the hook for using force. Like that shouldn't make sense. And this company, city should not go into agreements with them. And we should end the agreements we have. And if you're in California and you want to take action on this, you can go to policescorecard.org. We just released a new project, which includes evaluations of all 58 sheriff's departments in California, as well as the 100 largest cities there. Um, you can see what policies your city's department has and then find contact information to call your mayor, call your police chief, demand that they update their policies in ways that are actually consistent with what the research shows in terms of ways of reducing and ultimately ending police violence, and then also urging them to cancel those contracts with Lexapol. So for my news, I want to talk about some reporting that is coming out of ProPublica about McKinsey & Company. For those who don't know, McKinsey & Company is an international consulting firm that does all sorts of work across the world, ranging from nonprofits to governments to corporations. 
They were brought in under the Obama administration to help the U.S. government engineer what they called an organizational transformation in the ICE division charged with deporting immigrants who are in the United States unlawfully. ICE quickly redirected McKinsey toward helping the agency figure out how to execute the White House's clapdowns on illegal immigration when the Trump administration came into power a few years later. But the money-saving recommendations the consultants came up with made a bunch of the long-term career folks at ICE uncomfortable because they proposed cuts in spending on food for migrants, as well as medical care and supervisions of detainees, according to interviews with people who worked on this project for both ICE and McKenzie, and 1,500 pages of documents that were obtained by ProPublica under the Freedom of Information Act. McKenzie's team also looked for ways to accelerate the deportation process, provoking worries among some ICE staff members that the recommendations risked short-circuiting due process protections for migrants fighting removal from the United States. The consultants, according to some folks that ProPublica talked to, seemed focused solely on cutting costs and speeding up deportations, activities whose success could be measured in numbers, with little acknowledgement that these policies affected thousands of actual human beings who existed beyond a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. McKinsey also pursued uh, what they called detention savings opportunities. That's in air quotes. In blunt ways, consultants encouraged ICE to adopt a longer-term strategy with operational decisions to fill low-cost beds, quote-unquote, before expensive beds, which in practice means shunting detainees to less expensive and oftentimes less safe facilities that were in rural county jails. This is not the first time that McKinsey has been in hot water. McKinsey has faced mounting scrutiny over the past two years as reports by the New York Times, ProPublica, and others have raised questions about whether the firm has crossed ethical and legal lines in pursuit of profit. The consultancy returned millions of dollars in fees after South African authorities implicated it in a profiteering scheme. The exposure of its history advising opioid makers on ways to bolster sales induced the usually secretive firm to declare publicly that its opioid work had ended. And last month, the Times reported that McKinsey's bankruptcy practices are subject to federal criminal investigation. The firm denied wrongdoing in each of these cases, but apologized for missteps in South Africa. Uh, we should note that McKinsey's work with ICE ended in July 2018, and the proposals that most troubled agency members, like cutting spending on food and medical care and maintenance, were not incorporated into the new contract tracks, though they had been suggested. And so I bring this up because the consulting world is one of those places that has operated and continues to operate under the sort of fog of mystery and behind a veil that not many people are allowed to see. And I'm not going to sit here and say every single thing that consulting companies and consulting firms do are terrible. But I do think it is important to interrogate the work that a lot of these places are doing that has long gone uninterrogated. I think so often, you know, I remember McKinsey and all these places coming and visiting my college and recruiting lots of folks and lots of people I love and, and my friends to go work for these firms. And, you know, people would say, I'm a consultant, and nobody would really actually know what that means. But it turns out they do a wide range of things and including some things that are less than okay, if we are going to put it mildly. And, you know, on the presidential primary, obviously, candidate Pete Buttigieg is under a lot of pressure right now to be transparent about his work for McKinsey, who he worked for when he worked for them. And people are arguing whether or not he should ignore an NDA that he signed, saying that he was not able to talk about that work. So this is relevant to various parts of our political process at the moment. And I wanted to bring it here. It's wild to think that the proposals that McKinsey had for ICE were considered too extreme even for ICE, right? Like, what does it mean when you have people working at ICE who are 
challenging the recommendation that you cut down on the amount of money spent on food, that you put people in even more inhumane conditions than they're already in, uh, in the context of immigration detention. That was just how obscene some of these proposals were from McKinsey, all sort of couched under this guise of, you know, we're going to save money and we're going to address, you know, corruption and bloat in the budget by essentially cutting all of these, all of the bare minimum and even less than minimum level supports that existed for immigrants in detention. And then the other thing that was also interesting was thinking about, you know, while there was all this pressure to cut anything that had any level of humanity left in that system, providing people with basic needs and food, at the same time, the Trump administration was pushing and leaning on McKinsey to help them accelerate the hiring process for ICE and Border Patrol agents that were supposed to be hired under the Trump administration's executive order. Remember back in 2017, Trump proposed to hire an additional 10,000 folks to work at ICE and Border Patrol, um, and McKinsey was coming up with strategies to accelerate the hiring process, which meant cutting down on the qualifications, cutting down on the standards for hiring. And at one point, they even proposed just mass hiring and mass training everybody in one big sort of auditorium which I think goes to show you that, you know, when the government wants to hire 10,000 people, they just propose all of these really accelerated strategies to do it. They loosen all the standards when it comes to investing in incarceration and immigration detention. But at the same time, these are the same people who will turn around and say, we just don't have any money. We don't have any resources to implement a universal jobs program or to hire people to do things that actually help people. You know, it remains to be seen what Mayor Pete will ultimately release. Uh, he recently released sort of an overview of some of the projects he worked at while at McKinsey, but has not released the names of the clients that he worked with, citing that non-disclosure agreement. You know, we've seen a lot of secrecy from the current occupant of the White House around past work, tax returns, pretty much everything. And I'm hoping that uh, in this presidential campaign and in the next president, we won't see that level of secrecy. You know, I think the conversation about consultants in general is really important because they often do work that has no visibility. And the Trump administration has also contracted with McKinsey to assess the federal student loan portfolio about whether to sell it or whether to, what to do with it. So I'd be interested to know what are all the other things that McKinsey is supposedly working on with the Trump administration. But we've spoken a lot, like the country has spoken a lot about Pete and the consultants, but... The whole consultant scheme under this administration is literally, like, I think that most of the immigration stuff is racist, obviously. All the immigration stuff is racist that Trump is doing. But I would say the majority of it, too, is actually a way to, it's like a really savvy money laundering through the government that, like, you know, he knows no wall is going to get built. He knows it. But he can push through a $10 million contract to his friend to, quote, get the supplies to build a wall. And like, that's a way to just give money to people from the government in a way that would be, you know, unacceptable if it didn't look sort of legit, I guess, is, is what that looks. But I wanted to bring our attention to um, Seema Burma. You probably don't even know Seema Burma because she works at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. And she oversees the health insurance portfolio for the elderly and poor. Now, you probably have not heard of the executive visibility proposal, but that is uh, the name of the strategic communications plan that she spent $3 million in consulting fees with 40 consultants to fix her, quote, image. There's an eight-page proposal where it was earmarked that like she, her image was not good. And the only way that they could do good work at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services would be 
for her to just look better in the public. And they have budgeted $3 million. Mind you, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, is a trillion-dollar organization. And as you all know, we got a lot of work to do with health insurance. So there's no reason why we should be pumping this money at all to fund her public image, but certainly not through contracts that look like this. And the only reason that the contract was ended was because of reporting. So it is wild to think about this is one thing that we know. I can only imagine all the stuff that we don't know. Okay, so mine's about food safety. I'm going to do something I rarely do is that I'm literally just going to read from this article because it is just so wild and I'll comment. So The Hill published an article, uh, this is Risking Food Safety, USDA Plans to Let Slaughterhouses Police Themselves. Uh, Let me just read. A new rule finalized today will reduce the number of government food safety inspectors in pork plants by 40% and remove most of the remaining inspectors from production lines. In their place, a smaller number of company employees who are not required to receive any training will conduct the, quote, sorting tasks that the USDA previously referred to as inspection. The rule also would allow companies to design their own microbiological testing programs to measure food safety rather than requiring companies to meet a standard. Equally alarming, the new rule would remove all line speed limits in the plants, allowing companies to speed up their lines with abandon. With fewer government inspectors on the slaughter lines, there would be fewer trained workers watching out for consumer safety. Faster line speeds would make it harder for the limited number of remaining meat inspectors and plant workers to do their jobs. Now, there's some stuff that you expected him to do. And then you're like, y'all are doing this deregulation thing in a way that the consequences are just going to be dire. There are more than 90,000 pork slaughterhouse workers whose limbs are already under siege because the current line speed is 1,106 hogs per hour. That's a lot of hogs that are getting killed. And the thought that they can just like speed up the line because they want to... Also, there are decades of studies that say that faster line speeds will just lead to higher injuries and illnesses. But again, this isn't at all about the workers. This is about making sure that production can increase. The other thing is that we have to make sure, you know, the USDA is one of those things that people take for granted, right? Because, you know, you're not really paying attention to the USDA because you don't really need it day to day. But you don't realize that you actually have it day to day. You have it all the time. The USDA is the only thing that's like checking your food, making sure that the food you eat pass some sort of standard or test or something. And the thought that pork will now be essentially unregulated is just wild. This is absurd. And I think... We've learned about the history of why these standards were put in place, you know, in in the early 20th century, just the level of depravity, the level of public health risk and disease and food that had everything from salmonella to, you know, fecal matter in it, all kinds of stuff that was just causing huge issues in terms of public health. And so they implemented regulations and things got somewhat better. You know, we were able to buy food and buy pork and buy meat and not necessarily have to worry about dying that day. Now, we can have a broader conversation about like what's in the meat and what's in the pork and the long term effects of it. Um, But I think that there was something basic there that has changed that this administration is trying to repeal now and take us back to that point in the early 20th century. And I think the other thing about reading this article that was wild to me was just the, the scale at which this was happening, and they're trying to accelerate it even further. So as you said, DeRay, 1,100 hogs being killed like an hour. 
And just like thinking about, I had never thought through not only like the scale of the death for the animals that were getting killed, but also the people who are working there apparently are getting injured as well because they're in these environments where they're having to work very quickly. They're essentially engaging this large scale sort of industrial scale butchery. I can't even begin to imagine what it's like working in these places and what it will be like under these new regulations that make things even worse. I'm reminded of my 11th grade high school English class when we read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. I don't think I've read that book since then, but I don't remember many things from high school, but I remember this book and I remember being so struck by how unregulated everything was, how many children were working in these factories and being hurt or killed, how disease was rampant from the workers and from the animals themselves, the nature of how disease passed from animal to person and that worker carries it home to their family. I mean, it was just the industry was, it was disgusting. And Upton Sinclair wrote this book and it does what I think some authors uh, dream of their their books doing is it completely changed and revolutionized an entire industry and opened people's eyes to something that they hadn't known about. And I'm thinking of that because it seems as if the Trump administration wants to go back to an Upton Sinclair-esque period of our history or a period of our history that is rather reflected in the sort of novel that Upton Sinclair wrote in The Jungle. And taking a look at some of the info around this, I mean, it, it comes back to money, you know, and I don't know, we should do it. An episode just on the lobbying industry and like the relationship of lobbying to this administration. But apparently Big Pork, they have won because the government would save almost six and a half million dollars while the profits for the industry would raise by almost 50 million dollars a year because slaughterhouses would be allowed to move hogs down the line at even higher speeds right and we already talked about how 1100 hogs an hour is a hog every three seconds and they want to go faster than that and the turnover in these factories is already extraordinary because people are not paid well and people are getting hurt and people are getting sick and so the idea that we would cut regulation by almost half um, and allow folks to do something that we already know has caused dozens of instances of food poisoning in the last several years is really concerning. And we're running out of adjectives to use for for these folks. I feel like I say concerning, unsettling, egregious, insidious every episode, but that's what it feels like. And that's where we're at. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. And now my conversation with Denora Getachew, who leads Generation Citizen. Denora, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show today. So I'm excited to learn more about Generation Citizen and to help our listeners learn. Can you start with how did you even get to this work? Uh, what was your path here? Where to begin? How long is the show now? <laughs> uh, well, first and foremost, thanks for the opportunity to be on the show. I'm Denora Gattacho. I'm the New York Executive Director of Generation Citizen, a nonprofit that I hope all of your listeners will be excited to learn more about, and especially those with young children, really advocate for reinvigorating civics education in school. So um, how did I come to this work? I think, you know, my story really is grounded in the story of many uh, Americans and especially those uh, from under-resourced communities. I grew up in Yonkers in the Bronx, so I'm a native New Yorker, a unicorn of such, if you will, because I've been here my whole life. And I kind of started my own civic journey as a young pregnant teen in Harlem um, at a moment 
where I didn't realize and even have the words to describe what it meant to be civically engaged or civically aware. And so, you know, I was a pregnant teen who was being discouraged from staying at my high school with my peers in order to go to a what we call a transfer school for pregnant teens. And it was interesting in that moment realizing that, you know, although I was a high-achieving student, my pregnancy was seen as a distraction to the school community. And so I go, you know, I'm, I'm a rule follower. Many people who know me will appreciate and nod their heads about that. So I, my mother and I go visit this transfer school and we, you know, explore the recommendation that was being presented to us to see if it was a good fit. And I learned very quickly, my mother and I, that while the transfer school had childcare, what it didn't offer was uh, robust and competitive academics. And so unwittingly or unknowingly launched my first advocacy campaign as a young teen to be able to appeal the decision or recommendation that I go to this transfer school, right? And so I fast forward many a years, if you will, and my story could have turned out very differently if I hadn't done that, right? So I am proud to lead the New York chapter of Generation Citizen, which is really on this transformational journey and movement that we're trying to inspire to get civics education back in the classrooms, um, to make sure that it's action-oriented, experiential, but really putting young people in the driver's seat of their own civic engagement. Because we know, by and large, especially if you're a young person um, and from an under-resourced community, you're less likely to know what democracy is and why it matters. So my journey was, you know, that high school experience and then really deciding that I wanted to commit myself to being a public servant in some shape or fashion. So I went on to graduate from high school and college, uh, went to law school at Fordham University here in, in New York City, and then really started working as a, as a baby lawyer, as I like to call it, at the city council, um, where I kind of cut my teeth working on democracy, again, not realizing like the importance of that to all of the issues that we all care about. Um, and so I've spent the better part of a decade and a half, really working both to eliminate structural barriers to participation. So, right, the things that we all talk about, automatic voter registration, early voting, campaign finance reform, um, and then found Generation Citizen in mid-2016 at a moment when I think we were all feeling this shift and this movement happening that was so much more grassroots driven and looking for ways for myself to actually help people connect the dots, right? And to realize that even if we got rid of all of those structural barriers to participation, if people didn't know why it mattered to participate, it would be for naught. And so I left the important and good work that I was doing at the time at the Brennan Center for Justice, even though I'm still a big fan of their work and believe it's um, as critical as the work I'm doing at Generation Citizen. But I wanted to be on the ground really helping to make sure that the next, but really the current generation of young people understood the tools they needed to have in their toolbox to be change agents. Can you explain to us why civics education matters in the grand scheme? So I think listeners would be like, yes, that seems important. There should be civics education. But wouldn't put this at the top of their list, even in this moment, you know, especially when you look at what it means that literacy rates across the country are really low. Math proficiency is in the tanks as well. That people would say that a focus on civics, like changing the curriculum, just seems like a nice to have. It doesn't seem like a gotta have. How would you respond to that? You know, I would respond to that by saying something very basic, maybe even a little bit wonky. So in this moment, I really do think we're having a civic awakening or reckoning. Like people are realizing that while every day we are watching democracy unfold at the national level, what we aren't doing is preparing people to understand how to process that democracy. We are not giving people the concrete knowledge and tools to understand why what's happening at the federal level or even at the state level and most importantly at the local level matters to their everyday lives. When you think about the foundation of our education, 
it really was for the founders, and I hate to be like the nerd on the show about this, but it was really about teaching people citizenship. Like our education system was grounded in that very simple premise. People need to understand democracy, which is a complex political system, and then understand how they become good citizens. And I mean that in the broadest sense of the word. And so, yes, I will never say to you that reading and writing and math are not important, but what is also equally important and fundamental to a well-rounded education is understanding the nuts and bolts of how we keep our democracy functioning and thriving. And so that matters just as much today as it did in the 60s when young people were getting even more civics education in their schools than they are now, right? I think we've seen over the last several decades whether we call it intentional, systematic, whatever word we choose to use, a decline in civics in the classroom has really been to our detriment as a country, right? We've been pushing towards competing in the global economic stage and really making sure that we can be STEM ready. I respect and appreciate that 100%. And yet we know that there's a direct correlation between the lack of civics education in schools and our participation in government processes and elections. That's a problem for our democracy. So people will listen and be like, I hear you, I'm sold. But like, what is civics? Is civics like a, this is what the three branches of government are? Is civics like we teach people how to write their own policy? Like, what is civics education at its core? Well, I think it depends on who you ask and when you ask them, right? That's the reality. So if I'm a woman of a certain age, and I, I like to call myself millennial adjacent, meaning I know how to use technology, but I'm a Gen Xer. I think for Gen Xers and above, right, civics probably means schoolhouse rock, right? So I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. And people will get great. If you memorize the branches of government and how a bill becomes a law, then you have civic knowledge. I think the reality is that in a 21st century democracy, I want to push back and say that civics is so much more than that. It isn't just memorizing the branches of government and having rote memorization in classrooms, because we know that 21st century young people need to understand how to leverage technology and connect the tools of technology to how they become civically engaged. So for us at Generation Citizen, civics is what we call action civics, right? That is a specific pedagogical approach that is grounded in a couple of core principles. So it needs to be defined by student-led projects where young people are really tackling real-world personal issues, right? Because if it isn't connected to what they care about and their own experience, they're less likely to care, right? I think the big change in our current education system is so much of the content is dictated by educational standards at the federal or state level and not grounded in how does that relate to me and practical life skills. So it's got to be real-world. Um, it's got to be political action that's going towards lasting systemic change. So it can't just be let's like and hug and retweet things on the internet with all due respect, because we all know that while technology can accelerate movements, technology in and of itself can't fix the problems that we have at a systemic level. And then there's got to be an opportunity for young people to really reflect on it, on the impact and approach of what they're doing and think about how they would do things differently if they were going to accomplish the goal of their action project. So, you know, from our perspective here at Generation Citizen, it really is about action civics, not just civics as usual with the rote memorization style. One of the things I was intrigued by, let me get the name right, is the democracy coach model. Can you explain to us the democracy coach model and whether, so I haven't seen it in practice, but I'm intrigued by the model itself. Can you talk about the model and then like what you've seen it do, if you've seen it sort of do what you wanted it to do? Yeah, great question. And so, you know, Generation Citizen is about 10 years old. We're a national nonprofit 
really leading this movement. And it's our story and the approach of the Democracy Coast model in particular is grounded in our co-founder and CEO, Scott Warren's experience as a student at Brown University when he conceptualized this idea of generation citizen leveraging this action civics model. And the approach and point of the model and the pedagogical discipline of it is really grounded in how do we get young people, again, especially those from historically marginalized communities, to see themselves as civic actors. And it was at a different moment in our country, albeit another historic moment. When he was a student, it was 2008, right? So imagine 2008, your listeners can take us back to that place where we were on the precipice of electing the first African-American president, right? So there was historic uh, voter participation engagement at that time. And yet, you know, the good government and me who hates the structural barriers to participation would say people shouldn't be standing in line for hours, right? But for Scott, what motivated him at the time was thinking about how to leverage the passion, optimism, volunteerism, the ability to be mentors and add advocacy support for educators to be getting civics education back in the classrooms. And so that college volunteer or democracy coach model, as we call it, is really grounded in that, like... On the one hand, we really want to get capacity in the classroom to support teachers in doing project-based learning and bringing in current events and guest speakers and pending policy and budgetary proposals to guide the students' action projects. We also want and he really founded it with this in mind, those same young people from under-resourced communities to know college students, right? Because many of them may not have a college student in their network or in their in their orbit. And so there was this opportunity to, for those young people to serve as near peer mentors, really helping to get young people to both become civic ready, but on the other hand, also see themselves as college ready, right? And so that's the twofold benefit of that college volunteer model. You know, 10 years later, or almost 10 years later, what we would say to you is that model still has benefits. It is definitely adding value for the educators, right, to be doing more project-based learning in the classroom. It's adding value for the students, both in seeing themselves as civic leaders, but also in being college ready. But there's something powerful that happens when a college student themselves are finding their own civic voice while teaching others civics, right? So that was kind of the unintended consequence and benefit of that approach is really thinking about how does a young person who is teaching someone else civics find their own civic voice and think about how that shapes their own journey? And so we've had college volunteers like April Snape, I'm thinking of here in New York, who took a class of her students down to Howard University just to see a college campus. That was beyond the scope of her democracy coach responsibilities by far. But there's something powerful about that. And at the same time, she was thinking about, well, wait, I want to do my part. I want to contribute. And now April's, you know, about to sit down and take the LSAT to think about how she becomes a lawyer, right? So there's there's that spillover effect there of like, how do you have a secondary benefit to the, the college volunteer and make sure that they are also um, becoming civic ready and engaged? Let's talk about your civic engagement. I know that you were appointed to a panel that helped redo the campaign finance in New York. How was that and how did that come to be? And and I'd be interested to know, given you do so much work around civic engagement and then you are on a panel that is directly, I mean, it is. this is not even sort of advocacy in a broad sense. This is actually being a part of a structure in a way and how that was. It's still going on, DeRay. So, you know, I'm going to ask your listeners to keep me lifted up to get to the end of this journey. And so it's a it's a powerful opportunity. You know, I think I often call myself, I kind of came up with the term in passing and now I'm obsessed with it. I want to get it on a T-shirt. I like to say I'm a democracy ninja, right? So I want to use all the tools in my toolbox to make sure our democracy is reflective and inclusive and accessible to all Americans, especially those who've historically been left out of the conversation. And campaign finance reform is one of those things that Americans are like, you know, talk about the bottom of the list. They're like, why does this matter, right? Um, And so earlier this year in New York, the legislature created this commission, a nine-member commission, to 
think about how to create a campaign finance, a public financing and election system here in New York uh, for statewide elected officials and all of the legislature that would ensure that the voices of more everyday New Yorkers, if you will, could participate in and have their voice amplified in public discourse and in electing um, candidates to represent them. It's been an interesting and exciting journey to think about where does the policy meet the politics, if you will, and really think about designing a system that ensures that the voice of everyday New Yorkers are, can be at the table while also creating a system that is viable so that those who seek to be elected officials can actually have the resources they need to run for office, right? And not just only allow those who with access to big money to be able to represent their communities. We have until December 1st to put our recommendations forward. And so I'm excited about this final sprint. I ran a marathon last year. And so I say, I think I think we're in mile 20. I think we're almost there. I think we can get to the finish line. But by December 1st, we have to, this nine-member commission, of which I'm one member, uh, we have to put forward our recommendations to how to create this system and how to have it administered in an effective way. And I'm excited about what that could mean for the future of uh, elected officials, uh, the future of democracy here in New York. There are a lot of teachers who listen, and I think, especially in the past five years, there are a lot of teachers who are like, we get it, right? Civics is important in classrooms. We are juggling a lot in schools, and they are trying to figure out the best way to make it happen. And one of the things that, you know, I used to train new teachers, and I would always remind new teachers that, like, your gift doesn't have to be the best way to teach fractions. Somebody's already thought about that. The gift that you bring to the classroom is that you are making the content real for your students, and only you can do that, Right. I say all that to say that there are people listening who are like, I get it. Your program is not in their city or town or state. And they are like, well, what can I do? Like, I hear her. I agree. How do I do this in the place closest to me? Well, that's the power of this work, right? So Generation Citizen is one of several people out in the field really doing this work, really creating this movement to reinvigorate and transform how civics is taught in schools. So we have materials accessible, a couple of free lessons that are accessible on our website, generationcitizen.org. But there are other partner organizations that we work with, like iCivics, which has offers civic games that can be implemented in classrooms, so leveraging technology to get civic knowledge in the classroom. Mikva Challenge is based out of Illinois, and they're doing work around the country as well, really through this action civics approach. For teachers, really, the importance is to think about how to engage, right, in that kind of iterative process that I talked about and putting students at the center of it. We often hear educators say to us, how do I incorporate it into my classroom, right, because I don't have extra time for this. And the reality is, just to be clear, what we're doing at Generation Citizen is we're going into those classrooms during in-class time, during social studies, during history, increasingly even during science classes, and teaching young people how to leverage democracy to advance the issues they care about. So this doesn't have to feel like an add-on. Instead, it is driving towards critical thinking, policy research skills, stronger oral and written communication skills, analytical skills. Those are all relevant 21st century skills that young people need to have. And so it shouldn't feel like it's additive, if you will, or subtracting from anything that's already existing, but really something that can be incorporated into the classroom setting in any discipline. So we would encourage teachers to check out our website, check out the websites of our peer organizations who are doing this work, because there are ways to incorporate it without it feeling like that heavy lift. Um, and then most importantly, realize that all of the students need this, but especially students who come from historically marginalized communities. You know, there's currently a civic empowerment gap facing our country where a third of young people are actually proficient in civics. That's a problem. If a third of young people who are, you know, coming of age and will be the largest voting majority in a few short years 
are civically proficient. And it's even less so when we look at the Black and Hispanic community. So 9% of Blacks are civic proficient and 12% of Hispanics. We should all be concerned about what that means for the future of our democracy and how we can help to strengthen and ensure that that new American majority, the rising American electorate, whatever we want to call them, is prepared to take the stage and take the power that is sitting there for them. And what is civic proficiency? Like, how do you measure that? What does that mean? Great question. So there are standardized tests at the federal level that are administered, and it really is getting at, you know, many of the aspects that I talked about, understanding the core civic knowledge. So like, what are the branches of government? How is it structured? You know, what's an executive function, a legislative function, a judicial function, separation of powers, kind of more of that traditional civic learning, and then increasingly really thinking about um the underlying issue identification and examining sense of self and community and how that all interplays, right? And the work we're doing at Generation Citizen through our action civics approach is going the extra step in teaching young people civic skills. So once you understand how it's all structured and you understand the issues impacting your community, right, it's giving young people the tools to do something and not just complain, really think about how they harness their civic power so that they can lead effective change with the goal of driving towards a sense of civic agency or purpose. Because we know that young people don't feel a sense of agency, right? They're often not being put in a position to be able to make decisions. And so they're like, well, why would I bother doing this when I could do something else? Um, and so the goal really is to harness the existing civic knowledge standards, push towards the adoption of civic skills and implementation of civic skills in the classroom in order to increase civic agency by young people. What have you learned in this process? I think about how you got not only to the work of civic education, but to lead uh, a branch of an organization in the biggest city in America that's focused on this. I can only imagine that you've learned so many things over the years as the leader. What are some of those things? I recently turned 40, so I've been doing a lot of reflection on like my own civic journey and how I got to this moment. And one of the biggest things I've learned is that systemic change is hard, right? And I and I don't say that because I want to discourage your listeners or you know discourage uh, the young people who hopefully will be listening to this, but instead to say. We live in a world where there is this instant gratification for everything we do, right? Like I could go online and I could post the picture and I feel impactful. I go online and I retweet because I'm really mad about something and that's impactful. But we forget, right, that democracy is a full contact sport and that it really takes you using all the tools in the toolbox in order to affect systemic change. That ain't going to happen overnight. The reality is when we look at, you know, big movements in our country— be it the fight for civil rights, the fight for women's suffrage, the fight for marriage equality. Yes, we can say that, you know, in some of those cases when technology was available, the movement was accelerated, but it sure as heck didn't happen overnight. And so I'm always reminded of and both calmed by and inspired by the fact that we need everybody to roll up their sleeves and to keep joining that coalition and join that movement to keep systemic change happening. And I think the challenge in this moment is that it's a very noisy moment. Which thing do I care about the most? Like, what's the hierarchy of priorities? The reality is we need to have some level of prioritization about which campaigns are most important and how to get there. But more importantly, we need people to understand how it works so that they can keep those campaigns going and be realistic about incremental victories leading towards that systemic change, right? And not be daunted by the fact that because you didn't get the victory on the first attempt, you got to quit and like go home. There are a lot of people, myself included, who are trying to make sense of 2020, trying to think about how do they take in all the noise, as you talked about, how do they process a million candidates? I'm sure you and the program work with a lot of young people who this is their first election they'll be voting in. What advice do you have for people for how to make sense of this moment or like what should they be thinking about or anything you can offer? 
First and foremost, I'll just reiterate for your listeners that Generation Citizen is nonpartisan, so we do not get involved in the capital P political work, right? We are educating young people about how to participate in democracy. And then with that, I'm going to say what we say in our classrooms, which is like, educate yourself, right? Understand the issues that are at stake. Understand the people who have decision-making authority about those issues and what are their positions on the issues. And then push, push those would-be candidates, those elected officials to actually move forward systemic change. You know, what's interesting is when you talk to young people, because we don't often teach them, right? I've been saying recently that no one's knocking on someone's door, be it in an affluent community or a less well-resourced community and saying, hey, have you heard about democracy? But imagine if they did, right? Imagine if someone knocked on your door and said, hey, have you heard about democracy? Because we all care about issues. And in this moment, we've become more issue-oriented than we are candidate-focused, which I think is good and it's very powerful. But the reality is that when we do that, We don't remember that we are not coronating our leaders anymore, right? That was the whole point of becoming an independent democratic society. And yet the consequence is that we often elect elected officials and then we bid them adieu. We're like, good luck. Call me later. These are the things I care about. And we don't hold them accountable, right? So I I do remind folks, especially young people, that when I say democracy is a full context board, I'm not saying it because I'm being glib. I'm saying it because we actually have to engage in the practice of democracy. We actually have to make sure that we're not just saying, I care about this issue or I care about this person and then walking away. We've got to actually use all the tools in the toolbox, write the op-ed, call the elected officials, show up at the hearing, make sure you're making your voices heard on the issues you care about. So when young people are looking at 2020 and the field and what's happening, one, I want them to remember that, you know, systemic change takes time. And two, that it is their responsibility and it is their right to make sure that they are engaging in the process and holding their elected officials accountable on the issues they care about. Boom. There are two questions we ask everybody. The first is there are a lot of people in this moment who feel like they did everything they were supposed to do. They called, emailed, voted, testified, protested, had the signs, did all the things, and the world didn't change the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? Welcome to the way democracy works, right? And it isn't about your specific or your individual feeling in the moment. Again, I sound like a broken record and I apologize to your listeners for that, but I truly and genuinely believe that we've got to keep at it, right? So imagine if, I'm going to say this in the case of, for me, you know, my great-grandparents or great-grandmother would have said, there's never going to be a day when women will have the right to vote. Between when the convention at Seneca Falls happened and the 19th Amendment were passed, that was 72 years of doing the same thing over and over again. So imagine if those women didn't have the fortitude to stay at it for the long haul and then to train more women to do the same and to actually get the amendment passed. So we've got to see the long game. And I think that's what we've lost sight of in this moment is because it's so noisy and there are so many passionate people caring about so many important issues. We forget that it takes time to get there. So sometimes you might lose the current battle, but that doesn't mean you're going to lose the war. you got to get back in there, roll your sleeves up, reevaluate your tactics, think about how you push forward the systemic goal that you're trying to achieve. So I'm going to tell your listeners, don't get daunted. Just take a break and, and reset. What's a piece of advice that you've learned over the years, that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? There are a couple pieces I would give, but I think you know what calls me most every day is the fact that all of us need to be clear about what's our personal mission statement. What is it that we feel like we are most effective at, inspired, and called to do? And then what do we need in order to do that, right? So sometimes we might be in a space for a moment doing the work that we need to do in in this moment, which may tangentially drive towards our own personal mission statement. 
but doesn't feel as gratifying. But we have to be guided by kind of that North Star of like, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? And then how do I use the tools in my toolbox to do that? And I often tell my own story, not because I need the victory lap of having had a child as a a teenager um, in an under-resourced community and now having a college-age son, DeAndre, and two daughters to say that I'm, you know, successful, but instead to tell people that your zip code doesn't have to define your destiny and that you can actually accomplish more, but you have to know what that more is you're trying to accomplish. And I find that often people are frustrated in life because they're not clear about their own personal mission statement and what it is they feel compelled to do to improve the world in their own way. Boom. Thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People, and we can't wait to see you again soon. Thanks. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. 